Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's show. My name is Spence Walsh. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. On the show, Florida continues to look great, as always. Now, reporting more than 15,000 new coronavirus cases, a daily record for the United States. And cases are continuing to grow in the Midwest. We'll talk about that. I'll also take a look uh, take a look at a contentious GOP primary for once. How shocking is that? Also, we're going to take a look at Nathan Robinson on the left-wing mob and cancel culture and political correctness, all that stuff. Uh, have a fun little discussion about that, which could go on for a very long time. Also, how the House Democrats are expanding war and could... Mr. Larry Hogan take the Republicans away from the kind of populist turn that they're on with a big tent party approach. Could all be very interesting, and we are glad to, of course, be discussing it here today. He's joining us. Um, yeah, but of course, you start with Florida, all that stuff going on. It's, it's great. More than 15,000 new cases of the coronavirus were announced on Sunday in Florida, marking the highest single day total of known cases. And the day is still like we are doing this today live on Newsflash at just around 8.30. So it is the fact that we already know 15,000 new cases are it, like it's pretty much proving now that Florida is the ground zero in the world for the pandemic, which is quite disturbing. Uh, Florida surge. Uh, sur- sur- Florida's surge soared past the previous record set in New York of more than 12,000 cases in a day. That occurred in April during the worst outbreak there when testing was scarce, and Florida is reporting far fewer deaths than New York. Florida also saw the single-day records in the counties that include Florida's largest cities, including Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, Fort Myers, West Palm Beach, Pensacola, and Sarasota. Uh, the U.S. outbreak is growing across 37 straight states. More than 60,000 new coronavirus cases were announced on Saturday, more than any day of the pandemic except for Friday, when the country recorded more than 68,000, a single set, a single day record for the seventh time in 11 days is what it said there. Woohoo! We got it good, folks. This is so great. We love it. We love it. We love it. Uh, on Sunday, the World Health Organization reported more than 230,000 new cases, a global record for daily infections, and probably, a, a, as you can see, a good portion of that was the United States. Uh, and probably Brazil, probably kind of definitely plus 50% of that new total there. Uh, like just when you add those two up, because things are going bad in Brazil and other places in Latin America right now. Um, the country's seven day death average reached 700 on Saturday, up from 471 on July 5th, but still well below the more than two, uh, 2200 deaths. The country averaged in this each day in mid-April, and eight states set single-day death records over the last week. Alabama, Arizona, Florida, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, and Tennessee. Alaska reached a single-day record on Sunday with a very quaint-seeming more than 110 cases. So, yeah, that is uh, all pretty <laughs> kind of pretty funny stuff. So, it is, it's, it's amusing. But it is what we have to work with today. So, yeah, um, it's amusing. Well, it's, it's really it's amusing, but it's also pretty horrifying. Actually, it's not. I don't know. Why, I don't know why it's amusing. It's actually horrifying. But it's like this. It's kind of just insane that it's come to this. Um, that we have this in the. Uh, I, don't know, I do apologize. I was, 
adjusting something and I just kind of talked at a turn there. I did not in any way mean to apply any kind of amusement to the fact that the coronavirus cases are spreading in any way. I do not think that at all. That's like, that's terrifying. And the fact that it's going to be so long before we, A, retain any sense of normalcy. So people in those areas are going to be hit hard. Uh, and B, the fact that people are <laughs> like going to die from this and people who don't deserve to die and have really been the victims of a terrible response in almost every fat like facet of uh, American politics throughout this case. Like Democratic governors, Republican presidents, Republican senators, ha- like uninspiring House leadership on the Democratic side, some governors all over screwing up things in an incredible way, uh, Republican governors screwing up, like it's it is everywhere you look, every branch, every level, every sector of the American government, there is someone royally screwing this up. So the increase here has added a lot of strain on the hospitals in Miami Dade County. Six hospitals have reached capacity as cases spike. Uh, the increase in cases caused Mayor Carlos Jimenez to roll back reopening plans by imposing a curfew and closing restaurants for indoor dining. We've definitely had a sharp increase in the number of people going to the hospital and the number of people in the ICU and the number of people on ventilators. We still have capacity, but it does cause me a lot of concern. Yeah. So that is a big place where this thing is growing. And it like really, uh, especially in areas where there's a bunch of like kind of working class people have to go out a lot, especially black and brown working class people, which overwhelmingly people do not seem to understand that that is the face of the working class in this country, are going to be more likely to get hit from this and in a big way. Uh, the surge in cases that has, uh, surge in cases have been fueled in part by younger people, a segment of population that have become more mobile in recent weeks. Of course, with the summer starting and everything, everyone's been trying to get out, social distance, and hang out with people, and that has been a big problem. Uh, that has been a factor in the lower death count compared to the other places when the virus has likely to have a less severe toll because people are like, they may be getting it, but they're quarantining maybe and because young people are more likely than not to be asymptomatic carriers, they will not make a big deal out of it. It's not hard for younger people, though, coming home to parents or grandparents or working with older co- co-workers to, spread, to spread, have it spread. And I think that's what we're seeing. And that's really the worrying thing. And that is where deaths are going to kind of, in a very sad way, very unfortunate, very scary way, are going to have to start to tick up is what we're going to see. Um, Meanwhile, some parts of the Midwest are beginning to look alarming like the South and West did just a month ago. Cases have been trending upward in every Midwestern state except Nebraska and South Dakota. Uh, And you better believe after what happened in Mount Rushmore, the cases are probably going to start to trend up. Uh, In South Dakota, Minnesota announced highest daily case totals since May on Sunday and Saturday. Ohio, which has been making pretty good progress in fighting the virus, uh, 1,525 new cases in, uh, on Friday, apologize for that, exceeding the previous single-day record it had set back in April. Across the Midwest, states and local officials are locked in contentious partisan debates about reopening and masking ordinances that eerily echo those that occurred in the South and the West just weeks before some of the we get to fill capacity, due capacity and visits were forced to close again. Pretty much exactly what happened in Texas, and we saw, like, people, like, who were... It's kind of a really weird, almost uh, down, up, and down. Like, there was a really a, a period where, of course, masks did work. And there was a big point where, like, liberals were being called out for alarmism of the virus. And uh, people like Tucker Carlson, for example, wanted to call the WHO and be like, of course. There's videos of Tucker Carlson in, like, early March being like, 
Of course the mask works. Are you crazy? The WHO is just lying to you, and they're trying to, of course, blame it all on Trump and, and, and pass on the blame off onto China. Like, that is what they're trying to do. Masks work. Like, and they told you masks didn't work, which is unbelievably stupid. It makes the WHO look incredibly stupid, bad, and pointless. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deny that in any way, shape, or form. But the fact is, the, for a long time, the right was like, yes, there was a period. We cannot, like, let them forget this revisionist history. Uh, or trying to revise history here, like there, like there was a big period where, uh, like March, April, where the left was like, or the right was like, yeah, the masks are good, they are great, and then all of a sudden, like, if you wore a mask, you would die, and like people like couldn't breathe, and like for example, Bill Mitchell, uh, who's a kind of right wing radio host that some people may know about, uh, he put the mask on his face and was like, within seconds, I couldn't breathe, like. Like he and he looks like he's a relatively well aged older gentleman. Like he doesn't even have that many. Like he's not like five hundred pounds and has some kind of breathing dis like disorder. Like if you have if you have a problem breathing when you're wearing a mask, you have some sort of respiratory ailment, or you are more out of shape than is humanly possible. Or I I previously thought was humanly possible. Like if if you're generally happening, and of course the most high thing that happens here is they just lie about it um yeah so that is the truth of the matter so pretty much what you need to know is cases are going up in uh the south the west and the midwest so uh that is pretty it's a it's definitely it's no doubt it's a pretty dire picture i would say of what is happening and i think you you gotta be very much concerned about a lot of this stuff um, so it's definitely something we're going to be keeping an eye on here on future episodes of the show. If you want your voice heard, weigh in, of course, on the speaker live chat. We will read your comments, react to your comments on air if you're listening. So do feel free to drop in in some cases. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough for listening to programming from the Spencer Walsh Radio Network. It really means a lot. So if you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting us by checking out our merch store available on speaker.com slash TSWS. The link for it is there. Also, if you like what you're hearing, feel free to leave us a review on wherever or however you listen. You can do it on Spreaker by leaving a positive comment and, of course, on iTunes by rating and reviewing us five stars and on whatever possible program or site that you listen to SWRN on, leave a nice review, leave a good comment, let us know your feedback. And also, if it's negative too, I always welcome constructive feedback. Thank you so much for listening. And now let's get back to your show. Still to come here on Newsflash, we take you inside a contentious primary, but on the Republican side for once, uh, we take a look at Nathan Robinson, how the House Democrats are spreading more war with Liz Cheney of all people, and can Larry Hogan, Governor of Maryland, take, and by the way, what a interesting looking guy that is, 
take the Republicans to the distance in the future and take them in a new, really a genuinely new direction. So very, very interesting stuff to talk about. And we will be getting into it. But first, a new report here in the Intercept by Matthew Cunningham Cook caught my attention about as an anti-war Republican waging an aggressive and well-funded campaign in the July 14th primary for the main second congressional district, a mysterious dark money super PAC has spent $345,000 in the last three weeks to attack him. So there's an anti-war, and we hear a lot about this type of new Republican populism kind of int, uh, kind of represented by people like, I'd say uh, Josh Hawley maybe in the Senate in kind of a, in a weird way, and also I think more... Uh, conclusively like people like Sagar and Jetty in the hills rising uh and of course I have been known to have my doubts about that type of politics and like how sincere it is and how truly like the the leveling of the political spectrum should engage with it should make allies on certain certain issues like on basic on things where we both agree I think why not like why turn down an ally but when it turns into just thinking how we think it and how we deal with these people, um, they're just they're not on the same side. We have our own side; they have their side. I think that is just a real reality that you cannot ignore. But this Cook political report rates the district as one of the just one of the fifteen Democratic held toss up seats in the nation. As the Republican Party faces a raucous and often acrimonious debate between Representatives Thomas Massey and Senator Rand Paul on one end and former National Security Advisor John Bolton, Senator Tom Cotton, and Representative Liz Cheney, who we will discuss um, in just a few stories on the show, um, this show, uh, the, the race in Maine provides an up-close look at the divisions inside the party and financial backing of each side. Uh, on one end of the race is a Paul endorsed, Rand Paul endorsed former state senator Eric Brakey, who, like Paul, is a libertarian and is highly skeptical of U.S. militarism and has been an outspoken critic of Saudi Arabia. This is completely fair. And I think this is something that, like, we should be working with these people when it comes to something. If they want to do something about Saudi Arabia, if they want to do something about militarism, that is a perfect ally, perfectly acceptable ally to have. Uh, but like when it comes to giving up your principles to work with these people, that is, as I think is more iffy situation like it can't like sacrificing some things in in pursuit of a larger goal i feel like that's justifiable but i think it's a kind of case by case for sure in most cases would be i think i would have had a guest uh but here's what he says when it comes to foreign policy i want us to be realistic breaky told the washington examiner in 2017 i think it's crazy that we have troops in 177 different countries that were in afghanistan 16 years later when the youngest soldiers currently going in there were two or three years old when we went there in the first place on the former, on the other end is the former state representative Dale Crafts, who said during a debate with Brakey in February, the U.S. economy would be absolutely collapsed tomorrow if the U.S. reduced its presence in 800 military bases scattered across the globe, saying that China, Russia would overtake the world, Al Qaeda and ISIS would go rampant, and Israel would be wiped off the face of the earth. Of course, presenting a kind of narrative of like the U.S. is the superpower, the U.S. needs to be the global police. We're the only thing. The kind of uh, just blatant like arrogance. Uh, just cynical, very arrogant presentation of the world that these people give uh, that is just kind of just really fighting yourself if you're the United States, to say the least. Kraft's team is teamed up with Eaton River Strategies, owned by a registered foreign agent of the government of Saudi Arabia. 
Also in the mix is Adrian Bennett, a former spokesperson for the Maine governor, Paul LePage, who is not running on any particular set of foreign policies. A poll released Wednesday shows a tight race. The Maine's instant runoff voting makes prognostication difficult. Crafts is currently polling in first place at 37%. I do believe they have ranked choice voting in all their elections there in Maine. Uh, Bennett is at second and 25%, and Brakey is unfortunately at third and 19%. He'd probably be the best guy for any leftist to have around town uh but uh he said it's says ben freeman a researcher for the center for international policy says quote it's troubling that a registered foreign agent being paid by saudi arabia is working to defeat a candidate that is critical of saudi arabia and of course that's just the the splendor and wonder of uh the u.s democracy but crafts is the establishment candidate he's received many more endorsements uh, then Brakey. Uh, incumbent Representative Jerry Golden won the seat in 2018 from two-term Republican Bruce Polquin. The district provided Trump with his only election, oh, sorry, electoral vote in New England in 2016, and under the semi-unique system that Maine shares with Nebraska that allows the state to split its electoral votes by a congressional district. Though less brash than Kraft's, Golden has closely hewed to the mainstream foreign policy agenda voting last week with a majority of Democrats and Republicans. Again, we will talk about this coming up on the House Armed Services Committee for, a, uh, for the Cheney Crow Amendment aimed at continuing the war in Afghanistan. Brakey, though, began his career in politics by running, against, uh, by running Ron Paul's 2012 presidential campaign in Maine as a member of the Republican Platform Committee in 2016. Brakey sought to add language to the platform that would guarantee the declassification of the famous 28 pages of the 9-11 Commission report, an effort fiercely fought by Saudi Arabia and its lobbyists in Washington. Brakey has also sought to uh, have language included in the platform that would have unequivocally contemned the U.S. intervention in Libya, which is another interesting point and way of looking at it. Uh, after serving two terms in the main Senate and then being the Republican nominee against Angus King in 2018, Brakey announced his campaign in September. So now he's given another, given another shot there in Maine. So hopefully uh, he pulls up some win this t- I think, this, yeah, it's going to be this Tuesday. That's going to be an interesting one to watch. Uh, but, of course, you can't really get too invested. Like, this guy, I'm sure, has a whole host of other, like, odious uh, policy positions. So you can't get too invested in him just because he is pro-war. Uh, we're going to check out the Nathan Robinson article next. If you want to support the Spencer Walsh Radio Network, please consider following us on Spreaker.com slash TSWS. Put in your email to be alerted whenever we go live and anything else you may need to know about SWN's major events. Coming up next, we talk about cancel culture. And we're talking about, of course, Nathan Robinson. He has an article about this in the uh, magazine Current Affairs. Uh, Donald Trump's Independence Day speech at Mount Rushmore was a call to arms to take on the evil mob destroying our beloved country's values. It was a thunderous combination of the political left and a promise to seize the country from totalitarian proponents of social justice who are destroying our culture of free speech and open debate and replacing it with cancel culture and speech codes. In schools, our newsrooms, even our corporate boardrooms, there is a new far-left fascism, he says, that demands absolute allegiance. If you do not speak its language, perform its rituals, recite its mantras, and follow its commandments, then you will be censored, banished, blacklisted, and punished. 
One of their political weapons is cancel culture, driving people from their jobs, shaming centers, you know, get the idea. Uh, Trump's picture of what's going on in this country is totally detached from reality. Totalitarianism involves guns and concentration camps. The radical left of the United States has two members of Congress, Bernie Sanders and AOC, perhaps, of course, Ilhan Omar and Rashid Taleb, of course, uh, maybe we could say uh, Anna Presley, I don't know. Uh, this is the same conservative persecution complex that we've heard for decades. Some of the richest and most powerful people in the world claiming that the, like, the far left are totalitarians when it's literally the fact that the regime of like, just the anti-communism and the, this is really has proved to be a far more dangerous uh, ideology. Uh, although there has been, I think, leaders that, well, communism not entirely being, of course, they're being the ideology that they professed to uh, support and for a large part did support they were driven by things not just the force of communism i think you can admit people like mao and people like pol pot were just insane psychos as well that was a big part of the motive that drove them to commit the violence that they did commit but it should be clear what's going on here trump's much vaunted economy has tanked while over one hundred thousand people uh, have oh, sorry, well over 100,000 people have died from coronavirus and cases are on the rise. Eight out of 10 people report they're dissatisfied the direction our country's going. And Joe Biden is out pulling Trump consistently. Americans have gotten more sympathetic to immigrants over time, so we can't run a scapegoating uh, Mexicans campaign like he did in 2016. Trump has only one approach left. Try to reignite the culture wars and convince people that a censorious PC left is trying to destroy our freedom. But Trump is not the only one who sees, oh, this is good. I didn't know this was in here. Uh, but Trump is not the only one who sees the left as a threat to freedom. Rolling Stone journalist Matt Taibbi says the American left has lost its mind and leaders of the new movement are replacing traditional liberal beliefs uh, about tolerance, free inquiry, and even racial harmony with ideas so toxic and unattractive they shoo debates moving straight to shaming threats and intimidation. Yesterday, Harper's Magazine, which famously fired an editor for criticizing an anti-Me Too essay, uh, and gave a the world a 7,000-word self-pitying rant from an NPR uh, host dismissed for sexual harassment and incompetence, published a short open letter on justice in an open debate co-signed by Motley Sorpin of Luminaries, arguing their free speech is under attack that I'm sure, we I think we've played about. Um, there are figures from the, um, yeah, we talked about that on the show before, about the letter and stuff like that. I believe that was last episode, if you want to go back. Uh, some of the people that signed it include uh, members of the intellectual dark web, New Yorker writers, New York Times writers like David Brooks and Michelle Goldberg, chess champion uh, and proponent of the idea that the Middle Ages did not happen, Gary Kasparov, um, Noam Chomsky, the wonderful Noam Chomsky, uh, right-wing bullards, David Frum and Francis Fukuyama, uh, Martin Amis, Salman Rushdie, and J.K. Rowling, um, Teacher Gina President Randy Weingartner, Matt Carp and Samuel Moyne. I didn't know they signed it. Emery Slaughter. Uh, Fried Zakaria. Uh, ironically, several of the signatories have been previously publicly been involved, like such as Barry Weiss was one of them, uh, involved in efforts to get people's careers women for ideas that were different from their own. So, of course, they have been called out to be incredibly hypocritical. Um, the statement itself is framed as a vague and unobjectionable endorsement of free speech, and several of the signatories have evidently, evidently assumed that's what they're endorsing, but it is clearly mainly, uh, very mainly a warning about the conscious uh, censoriousness coming from the left, and that's kind of the sense that you get, at least judging on who the signatories are, and this is clear, 
not only from its it's not just the red anymore framing, but from the examples the left letter used to explain that we now support its case. Professors are for quoting says researchers fired, uh, and the letter specifically declines to litigate the facts of the individual incidents. It's very, very vague. Uh, and of course, we went through that. If you want to talk, if you want to hear more about this, you can check my uh, YouTube to find a little bit more about this. But we are going to move on because, of course, time. And we got another kind of disconcerting story to talk about, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the U.S. military has been fighting in Afghanistan for almost 19 years. House Democrats working in tandem with key pro-GOP lawmakers, uh, pro-war GOP lawmakers uh, such as Representative Liz Cheney are ensuring that this trend continues. Last night, the House Armed Services Committee voted overwhelmingly in favor of an amendment uh, jointly sponsored by the Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado and Congressman Cheney of Wyoming, prohibiting the expenditure of monies to reduce the number of U.S. troops deployed in Afghanistan below 8,000 without a series of conditions that were pretty much impossible to have met but being met. Uh, the imposed conditions are by no means trivial. Uh, and here, these are the conditions that are that they're supposed to meet uh, in order to draw down troops from the 17-year-long war in Afghanistan. Um, it is... Uh, they will not increase the risk for the expansion of existing or formation of new terrorist safe havens inside Afghanistan. Of course, it's a very, very hard thing to definitively say. Uh, it will not compromise or otherwise negatively affect the ongoing United States counterterrorism mission against uh, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or associated forces. Uh, the Crow-Cheney Amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act uh, last night passed by a vote of 45 to 11, pretty convincingly. Uh, the NDAA then unanimously passed the uh, by the committee of a vote of 56 this year, would authorize $740.5 billion in military spending, roughly three times more than the world's second highest spender, China. It is absolutely massive. Uh, and it's kind of pretty horrifying to, the, to think that they have such a kind of unanimous support on this. And the fact that it's just such a, such a north, even all the kind of progressive stuff that we see, it is still very much a very common thing uh, that we see happen in today's day and age that we we see this kind of um sense of just the real desperate need to expand the military at all cost um yeah but president trump throughout the year has it actually he he has been to the left of many many democrats on this and a lot of republicans uh, with his pro, uh, anti-war stance, President Trump throughout the year has insisted the Pentagon present, present plans for withdrawing all troops from Afghanistan prior to the end of 2020. Last week, reports indicated the Trump administration is close to finalizing a decision to withdraw more than 4,000 troops from Afghanistan by the fall, and Trump's plan would reduce the number of troops from 8,600 to 4,500, be the lowest number since the very earliest days of the war, which began in 2001. So... That's pretty positive, but shortly after the White House withdrawal plan was reported, anonymous intelligence uh, officials leaked a series of claims about the bounties, of course, as we know. Those leaks in bold opposition to troop withdrawal from Afghanistan on the ground would be capitulating to Russian treachery. It was New York Times leaked that Liz Cheney, along with GOP Congressman Mac Thornberry, said in a joint statement on Monday to suggest truth withdrawal would be negative. So this statement was, again... As a lot of people said, including me, if you go back and look at it, instead of the time, this is very, very coincidental that this comes in a way right about when they're uh, 
deciding what to do about Afghanistan. They're like, this is, this is going to come in handy. This is going to matter. And boy, did it. Just keep listening. It's the Spencer Walsh Radio Network. So we have a lot more to talk about still here on Newsflash. A very interesting uh, story. The rumors swirl now. Larry Hogan is adding a run for president in 2024. The Republican governor Mariner, uh, of Maryland has advice for the post-Trump GOP, and he wants to pull it, at least some would say, uh, a little bit more in a kind of corporatist, neoliberal agenda. We'll see what he has to say here. And pretty much his advice comes down to be more like me. I don't know what the... As, as Caitlin Opryska reports in Politico, I don't know the future holds in November, but I know that the Republican Party is going to be looking at what happens after President Donald Trump and saying, uh, whether that's in the next four months or four years, uh, that Hogan argued should becoming uh, be bec- include becoming more inclusive. As I as we all know, the Republicans are kind of just swaying between: do we really, really, really have to start appealing to minorities, or going to still? appeal it to exclusively white people. And Hogan kind of leads the kind of camp that says we need to start um, appealing to kind of minorities and be more inclusive if we want to have electoral success. I'd say probably the opposite, the polar opposite of him in the party is Tucker Carlson. Uh, Hogan pointed out that he also won votes from suburban women, a Democrat a demographic that appears to have ditched Republicans, something that could prove detrimental to Trump in the November election, I think could very well come right back to the Republican Party after Trump leaves if they nominate someone uh, with similar politics, but kind of a more veneer of respectability, which I would say is certainly possible, but um, but no one could excite that same base without that with without the with the veneer of respectability, I should say. It's kind of hard to have both. I think the I think that's something the Republican Party is going to have to look at. We're going to have to find a way to appeal to more people and have a bigger tent. He said the governor has made himself uh, kind of have a national name as one of the few prominent elected Republicans unafraid to speak out and criticize Trump since his reelection. Hogan has fueled speculation that he might have presidential ambitions, but did aside, decide against a primary challenge against Trump, he would have gotten creamed. For sure, as the head of the National Government Association, Hogan had been an outspoken critic of the White House's initial coronavirus response and is reportedly mulling around for president in 2024. Hogan recently penned a memoir about his experience battling cancer, the rise of Baltimore in 2015, and now, of course, the pandemic. Uh, and he has been through quite a lot. So, But I just don't think, I mean, as much as he, as much as he really wants it to be this way, I don't think the Republican Party can give up the white voter quite yet. (laughs) All right. That's all we got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. It's been Newsflash.